0: Is the American dream in crisis? That's the question today. We're here with Bob Putnam, the Peter and Isabel Malkin Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. Welcome,
1: Professor. Thank you very much. Good to be here with you. So
0: take us back to 1959 in Port Clinton, Ohio, and why that's important.
1: Well, um, it's probably important for many reasons. But the, the most relevant here is that that's when I graduated um, from high school. That's, and where I graduated from high school, I grew up in this little town on Lake Erie, um, kind of like Lake Wobegon on Lake Erie, nobody very rich, nobody very poor. Um, and um, we've gone back and looked at now at the, at the success or lack of success of all the kids in my high school graduating class. And, um, and we, were, we were an amazingly uh, fortunate or an amazingly uh, successful class in that um, 80% of us have done better than our parents. Um, And the kids from the wrong side of the tracks did just about as well as the kids from the right side of the tracks. Um, And that's not because we were unusually bright. It was because we were in a time and a place when um, how how well you did in life depended pretty much on what you yourself could do and your own abilities and hard work and not very much on what your parents did. I don't want to exaggerate, of course, there was racism and sexism in that period, and there was still some ad- modest advantage that kids coming from college-educated homes had. But overall, um, it was a modest town, and so therefore, about, almost half the kids in my graduating class came from homes where no one had ever graduated from high school. And of those kids, kids who came from homes where no one had ever graduated from high school, half graduated from college. So that's the benchmark. In America, there have been periods, times and places, when basically how well you did in life depended upon your own skills, didn't depend on what your parents did or didn't do. Right.
0: So that was, that was 1959. Now take us to today In the past 25 years and the state of the American dream now and whether kids and grandchildren are doing better than their parents.
1: Um, well, some are and some aren't. That's the basic point. Even, even in Port Clinton, uh, we went back and interviewed um, a lot of kids now, and it now turns out not just as this is not just about Port Clinton. I wouldn't be telling the story if it were just true about Port Clinton. Port Clinton happens to, capsu, uh, to encapsulate in a tiny little place, an unexpected place, big trends that have affected the whole of America. That is a big growing gap between rich and poor in America, the increasing segregation of America between rich Areas and poor areas, and um, and the increasing um, um, disarray in the working what we used to call the working class uh, family. This is about social class. It's not about race. It overlaps with race, but it's not the same thing as racial uh, disparities. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen in Port Clinton and in nationwide is a growing gap between rich kids and poor kids. Uh, When I say rich kids, I don't mean bill Gates 's kids, and when I say poor kids i don't mean some homeless kids. I mean the upper third and the lower third of American society and so in Port Clinton um, you can you can talk to kids who were dressed for success. they live in the in the million what are now million dollar mansions along the lakefront there, but you can look just on the other side of the road and you can see the um, the tumble down shacks really where poor kids in Port Clinton live, and they live an unspeakable life actually and that contrast, another way to put it, is a contrast between the life that my grandchildren have, and because they come from affluent and well-educated homes, and the poor kids in Port Clinton, is, is an unbelievable gap. That opportunity gap is, I think, the most serious problem facing America today.
0: So how did, how did we get here? What were some of these national trends? Were these public policy decisions? And then how do we sort of reverse this trend and close the gap?
1: It's a trend that, that the the, the larger trends um, derive from, first of all, the growing income gap in America. So rich families are a lot richer than than they used to be and poor families are poorer than they used to be. And that means that, for example, rich folks, rich families can spend more money on on summer camp and piano lessons and so on. Um, And it also means that they live more, um, uh, in living more affluent lives, they have more time to spend time with the kids what we call in the book, goodnight moon time, and there's a lot, there's a growing goodnight moon gap between rich kids and poor kids, I mean the degree to which parents are reading to their kids and playing with them and so on. Um, there's a gap in, in the quality of schools kids go to because increasingly we are concentrated in either in affluent neighborhoods with other affluent kids or in poor neighborhoods with other poor kids, less, less mixing across the class line than there used to be. Um, and, um, so you can see these these gaps begin very early, birth to three. They begin. They they then accelerate. The gaps accelerate when as kids get into kin- pre K and kindergarten and, and K twelve. Um, they accelerate too as kids begin to have um, rely on external supports. That is mentors and coaches and so on. Because in all those areas you can see this growing gap. More and more rich kids have access to coaches and. And clergy people and, and and other community members who can help them on their way, poor kids are increasingly isolated from everybody. I mean, that's the most shocking thing to me about this research, is that increasingly poor kids can't trust any of the major social institutions. They can't trust their families because their families are in disarray. They can't trust their neighbors because they live in terrible neighborhoods. They can't trust the schools because they're going to poor schools. They can't trust churches because they're no longer at church. They can't trust coaches because they're no longer playing um, extracurricular activities, and that, and, and they know it, by the way, and they are really, really angry and 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 um, cynical about the world. That's uh, their cynics were for, with good reason. I mean, they have they basically have found out that in their lives, adults can't be trusted, and one consequence that you can see very clearly is I start from the premise that all kids do dumb things. I mean, rich kids, rich kids do dumb things. Poor kids. Black kids, brown kids, white kids, your kids, my kids, all do dumb things. But one, one, one of our kids, that is, is, a, a kid from an affluent home does a dumb thing. They get involved with drugs or they drink too much or they get in a fight with a teacher or they, or they uh, you know, back the car into the ne- next-door neighbor's um, mailbox. Instantly, airbags inflate to protect the kid from the bad consequences of that dumb decision. So if one of my grandchildren got involved with drugs, for example, God forbid, the first thing I do is find the best... Uh, lawyer in town, and the second thing is find the best rehab facility in town. And I'm not apologizing, that's what parents and grandparents do. They, they try to help kids get around the results of bad decisions, of dumb decisions. But if one of the poor kids in our book did exactly the same thing that I've just described, no airbags. And that, that encapsulates the degree to which we have shunted aside these these kids from the rest of society. So as, as, a, as a
0: hopeful solution, or as something that we as a society can to, to break this, to close this gap, the question at today's Ask With Forum is, is can education restore social mobility? And I'm curious, in the research of your book and all the testimonials that you've interacted with, uh, is education, can that be perceived as part of the silver bullet solution to some of this?
1: Yes. Um, it's important to say, though, because Americans have developed a bad habit of blaming schools for everything, the, in our research, to the best of our ability, we think schools actually contributed almost nothing to this gap. This gap was not caused by schools or by failures of teachers or whatever. Kids bring these problems in their backpack or these advantages in their backpack when they come to school. When a rich kid comes to school in his backpack, is his parents' aspirations and his parents' resources, and when a poor kid comes to school in her backpack, as gang violence and, and, and uh, trauma at home and so on. Schools did not cause the problem, but schools can be part of the solution to the problem. Indeed, schools always in America have been meant to be one of the major tools we have for leveling the playing field, for making sure everybody gets a fair and equal start. And, of course, schools are doing some of those things now. There's a lot of talk about school reform, and I'm not a, a specialist in school reform. I would say that if I were putting my money on things that schools where schools are uh, communities could invest more in schools, I'd say first, um, uh, early, early uh, childhood uh, education was really valuable. And I don't only mean just pre-K, I mean doing things to help kids and their, poor kids and their, and their parents um, get caught up really at a very early age. And there are places around the country like Oklahoma where this is being done really well. I mentioned Oklahoma because it's a it's a conservative place. This is not a matter of liberal conservative. It's a matter of is there the local initiative to try to improve things. So early childhood education is an important thing um, in and around schools. Um, investing more uh, m- money and energy in the poorest schools so that we make sure that the. Remember, it's not that the poor kids are, are dumb when they come to school, but they are bringing all those, all the social pathologies of their homes and their neighborhoods into the school. And that means we don't just need to have equality of teaching in rich schools and poor schools. We need to have the best teachers teaching in rich schools and poor schools. It's not easy to teach in a poor school. It's hard. And therefore, we've got to make it possible. We've got to spend more time, energy, and money on persuading our best young teachers to be working in these in these challenged school districts. Then there are things later on like for example community colleges and, and um, uh, vocational technical education which can be also on ramps for kids.
0: So someone who might ask you as the final question, is the American dream not just in crisis, is it dead? And maybe the answer is not it's, it's not dead but it's a lot harder to attain. Is that the sort of thesis?
1: Yes, it is, but I don't want to be too negative about this because it's true, I think, that things are really in a bad, and we're in a bad place in America with respect to these class differences. But it's also true that America has been here before. There are previous times in our own history when we've been facing a crisis very much like this. At the turn of the last century, around 1890, 1900, America had a problem very much like this problem, that is growing gaps between rich and poor. And then gradually, we came to recognize the problem And we did a lot, made a lot of major social reforms, the most important of which it was, in that period, for solving this problem, Americans invented the high school. The high school, for the first time in world history, communities said, every kid in town, just by virtue of being a kid here in this town, should have a free four-year secondary education. That was a big, expensive investment. It was controversial at the time, but it turned out to be the best public policy decision Americans have ever made. Now, I'm not saying, we need to reinvent the high school. We've already done that. But what I'm trying to say is it's not, you don't have to imagine America becoming Sweden or something. You just have to go back to our own sources of, 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 of civic renewal and we can do this. There's still
0: hope, uh, I have gotta, gotta squeeze this in. Is the election coming up in November? Is that gonna affect the, the outcome, the results? Whether the American dream is in a better state?
1: It's interesting you say that. When we began this project, this research project, my colleagues and I um, five years ago, one of our targets was, tried, was to try to make this question, the opportunity gap, the, um, the central issue in the presidential election of 2016. At that time it seemed like a, a stretch. It was going to, the, the, the election was going to be about you know, gay marriage or, or uh, global warming or whatever. It now looks like it may be an important issue in this election. Having said that, I think this is a problem that's not going to get solved in the first instance in Washington. I think it's going to get solved in towns and cities all across America. That's the high school. go back to that example. The high school was invented not in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and not in Washington, DC, or New York, or Chicago, or Los Angeles. It was invented in small towns in the Midwest, where people said, look, these are our kids. All of these are our kids. And that's why the book has the title, Our Kids, because I think if we think of these kids, these poor kids, as our kids. It'll be better for them and better for us.
0: Professor Robert Putnam, the Malcolm Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis, although today he provided us with some good amount of hope. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. This has been the EdCast production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.